Mr. Schuster, Mr. Schuster accomplished this as part of what is undoubtedly the most daring automobile race of all time, the famous New York to Paris race, starting from New York and heading west. Now, this was in 1908, sir, is that right? Right. 1908, when there were practically no roads and certainly no highways as we know them today. Mr. Schuster not only completed the trip, but he won the race. Abraham Lincoln's birthday has long been celebrated by the automotive industry with fantastic deals and can't-miss bargains. But many years before three-day sales dominated the holiday, a much grander event marked the occasion. On February 12, 1908, Auto manufacturers from around the world gathered in Times Square to begin a race around the world. From New York City to Paris, it would become known as the Great Race of 1908. I'm Mark Hartsman, and you're listening to The Great Race of 1908. Six cars, six months, 20,000 miles of driving insanity. No snowplows either. I'm Weird Historian. The contest, co-sponsored by the New York Times and a Parisian paper, Le Matin, boasted a 20,000-mile route which ran across America to San Francisco, where a steamer would take the cars to Alaska, allowing a drive across the frozen Bering Strait, or carried by steamer if needed, through Siberia, Europe, and culminating in the French capital. Whichever car entered Paris first would take home the grand prize of $1,000. Six vehicles participated in the event. De Dion Bhutan, Motoblock, and Césaire Nodin from France, Zust from Italy, Protos from Germany, and the Thomas Flyer representing America. I have here a picture of the starting line at Broadway and 42nd. Here are the cars lined up getting ready to go. And which one is yours, sir? This is you over in the corner. Well, no wonder you want to have the outside track. <laughs> sure. The Thomas car, built by the Thomas Motor Company, was a 1907 Model 35 with a four-cylinder, 60-horsepower engine capable of reaching 60 miles per hour. In addition, it was fully loaded with two shovels, two picks, two lanterns, eight searchlights, two extra gas tanks with a capacity of 10 gallons, 500 feet of rope, a rifle, and revolvers. It was also equipped with an attachable top, much like those used on covered wagons, that could wrap the entire car and offer an enclosed place to sleep. Unfortunately, the concept of GPS was still nearly a century away. As for the driver, the Thomas Motor Company tapped 24-year-old Montague Roberts, who had won the 24-hour endurance derby at Brighton Beach in the same car the previous year. He was accompanied by George Schuster, a mechanic from the company, another mechanic, George Miller, and a reporter from the Times. Each of the competing cars was similarly staffed. Not only were there very few paved roads ahead, but automotive engineering was still in its infancy. Cars were still often referred to as horseless carriages, 
and the competing vehicles had open tops. At 11.15 a.m., with 250,000 onlookers crowding around the competitors, the starting gun fired and the six cars launched into the daunting trek. The motoblock fared slightly better, making it to Iowa before mechanical problems prevented it from going any further. The others journeyed on, braving the difficult conditions. At one point, the Thomas car took 13 hours to cover 8 miles through snowy Indiana. When no roads were available, with no windshields or heaters, the middle of winter was a cruel time to begin such a race. It didn't take long for the field of six to narrow. The Cesare Nodine got as far as Peekskill, New York, before breaking down and withdrawing from the race. The Zeus and the Dadeone arrived in San Francisco by April 10th and followed the Thomas car's path by steamer to Seattle and then Japan, where the Dadeone bowed out of the competition. The cars often rode over train tracks. By the time Roberts reached Cheyenne, Wyoming, he quit the race, claiming a prior commitment in a separate racing contract. Schuster took over the wheel, determined to finish the race. The Thomas car maintained a lead in the race upon reaching San Francisco after 41 days, 8 hours, and 15 minutes. A ship then took the vehicle to Alaska, but conditions there proved too impossible to overcome, so it was sent back to Seattle and then rerouted across the Pacific to Japan. After driving across the country's narrow roads, another ship carried the Thomas crew across the Sea of Japan into Vladivostok, Siberia. The Protoss, however, had suffered mechanical issues and was carried by train from Idaho to Seattle, where it boarded the ship straight to Vladivostok. As a result, the team was penalized 15 days. Additionally, the Thomas Flyer was awarded 15 days for the time it lost sailing to Alaska. Only the Protoss, Zeus, and the Thomas Flyer were left to brave their way through the perils of Siberia, although the Italian car was far behind the Germans and Americans. The race had essentially become a two-car battle of wills. According to a Sunday Times article from April 19, 1908, Vladis Vostok would offer immediate challenges. They will feel for a moment that they have found again the civilization of the West, began Luigi Barzini, a journalist who had accompanied the Italian team that won the 1907 Peking to Paris race. Its appearance is smiling because it is new, and new cities have always the freshness and gaiety of youth. As yet, Vladivostok is not ripe for automobiling. Everything has been thought of there except roads. Fifty miles from Vladivostok near Lorenzov, the last outpost of the coast mountains vanish along the horizon, and planes begin without end. For the automobiles, this part of the trip will be slow, arduous, and filled with small hardships. There will be precipitous descents, steep climbing amid reddish rocks, and afterward, on level ground, soft, swampy stretches. Indeed, at one point it took the Thomas car four days to cover 60 miles through Siberian mud. Cultural challenges also awaited as the cars crossed Asia into Europe. A June 28th article from the Times recounted several events from day 134 in Siberia. For example, a dozen men and women rushed through a gate at the Thomas car as the team rested. The crew, thinking they were under attack, prepared for battle, but quickly discovered they were simply being greeted by a group of friendly Russians. As they journeyed on, however, an attack did occur by mosquitoes. According to the report, they got into eyes, ears, noses, and mouths when the crew stopped to oil the car or repair the tires and made life miserable. By now, Schuster, who had been the sole driver since Roberts fled, was exhausted. 
The strain of actual work at the wheel and the vigilance necessary to escape danger, combined with the lack of rest and good food, has so worn upon him that he falls asleep whenever possible, often at the banks of rivers while waiting for the ferries, remarked the Times correspondent. Soon after, Schuster allowed Miller to take a turn at the wheel, which gave the Thomas car new life. The Protos, which maintained a lead at this point in the race, was facing its own share of difficulties. Near the town of Marinsk, the Germans encountered a stream that was more than 200 feet wide and 6 feet deep. The crew, with the help of the entire village, affixed big logs under and at the sides of the car to keep it afloat, and had four horses tow it across. Their successful crossing took 10 hours. Later, the Protos came upon a mud road, causing the car to sink to its wheel tops. Six horses eventually pulled it to freedom. Shortly after, the Thomas car found itself on the same road, but made it through with minimal difficulty. By July 30th, after 169 days of travel, the Thomas car entered Paris. Yet it almost didn't make it to the finish line. A police officer stopped the vehicle upon entering the city, claiming that it had no working headlight, and therefore, according to the law, could not proceed. A passing bicyclist witnessed the scene and offered to load his bike into the car. The bike had a functioning headlight, and the officer allowed them to pass. At 6 p.m., the Thomas car had successfully completed a race. Although the Protos had arrived four days earlier, its 15-day penalty gave the Americans the victory. The Zust made it to Paris more than a month later, on September 17th. Quote, the treads of its tires were torn and snagged, and its hood was dented and bent with stress of many a bump. For all its wear, it had a look of power, a Times reporter described upon the Thomas's return. Parts of the body had been cut away as souvenirs, while the whole surface was covered by a countless number of autographs gathered in every part of the world which it circled. The blue body was so covered with mud that it looked gray from a distance. But the mud and grime exactly fitted it, told its story graphically. Today, the victorious Thomas Flyer can be seen at the National Automobile Museum in Reno, Nevada. By comparison, it's just a short road trip from any of the 50 states. Just nine years before the Thomas Flyer raced around the world, another unique car made headlines, but for far different reasons, as you'll hear in this next story, a car only a horse could love. Discussions about transmissions, differentials, torque, and other vehicular intricacies may rattle amateur auto enthusiasts. But if you want to impress gearheads, shift the subject to horsepower. More specifically, the power of one horse. As you know, long before the might of 400 horsepower enhanced the state of a driver's masculinity, vehicles were powered by actual horses. However, like any who are left behind during times of technological wizardry and advancement, horses began to lose their jobs as motored vehicles took to the roads in the late 19th century. These wondrous machines were referred to as horseless carriages, 
In fact, car manufacturers tried to persuade horse owners to make the switch by claiming, if you can afford to stable a horse, you can afford one of our cars. Of course, horseless carriages were a brave new world to be explored by the curious and adventurous, those who sought greater enlightenment, speed, and status as an early adopter. Such courageous souls drove these amazing but, quote, infernal machines down the streets, startling every horse and pedestrian along the way. Frightened horses became such a problem that some owners threatened to shoot drivers on sight. In 1899, an inventor named Uriah Smith of Battle Creek, Michigan, came to the rescue of modern transportation. In an attempt to ease the transition to engine-powered carriages for both the driver and the horse, he created a vehicle called the Horsey Horseless Carriage. This early concept vehicle was designed to prevent horses from getting scared upon seeing an approaching automobile. The design called for a large wooden horse head to be attached to the front of the buggy thereby resembling a typical horse and carriage. The live horse would be thinking of another horse, said Smith, and before he could discover his heir and see that he had been fooled, the strange carriage would be passed. It's unclear whether any horsey horselesses were ever produced, or if it only existed in theory. Regardless, Time magazine made sure to include it in its list of the 50 worst cars of all time. Thanks for listening. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartsman. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland. This episode was edited to the mixed by Igniter Media. The clips about George Schuster came from the July 16, 1958 episode of I've Got a Secret. For photos related to this episode's stories and other strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at weirdhistorian on Instagram. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. Until next time, have a weird day.